antiquarian adventures in meta reality masks maladies and misrule episode 1 In the spring, we visited the Kingdom of Morocco. The north of the Atlas Mountains seems to be mainly populated by the Berber people, the indigenous mountain people of the region. On the surface, they seemed a typically Islamic people, but after a short time, we became aware that there was something quite different about them. They had a long tradition of trading with the Middle East, Europe and the Mediterranean and Sub-Saharan Africa. This in turn was reflected in their language and their ways. It was the men, not the women, who were veiled. The women freely displayed their smiling and sometimes tattooed faces. For a people who were continually in contact with other people from over such a vast area, The wearing of of the veil and the washing of the hands five times a day as their religion required seemed to make so much more sense. Not only protecting them from the rigours of the desert and the mountains, but also in protecting them from contagion. Whilst we were there, unbeknown to us, things in old Blighty were on the move. We got one of the last planes back before the airports began shutting their doors and arrived into a very different London, where frequent hand-washing and the wearing of masks was to become part of our lives too. Around the time of the spring equinox in 2020, we unexpectedly found ourselves sliding into a strange and unfamiliar world. The COVID-19 pandemic had dug its heels in and looked like it was here to stay for the foreseeable future. In a short time, a new vocabulary became increasingly familiar to us. Lockdown, social distancing, furlough, shielding, bubbles, track and trace, and for some of us, our lives changed unrecognisably. Now six months on, the autumn equinox has passed. Globally, the Covid mortality rate has just broached the million mark, 
and the UK has the highest COVID-related mortality rate in Europe. The last weekend, London saw large and violent demonstrations, of which seemed to be instigated by a mixed bag, primarily from the libertarian right, under the banner of the slogan, We Do Not Consent. Presumably this is in reference to the government's imposed restrictions and the wearing of masks and lockdowns and social distancing and and the projected use of vaccine programmes. This they felt to be heavy-handed, arbitrary and misdirected, many of which feel that the Covid virus itself is some kind of global hoax. Fiery rhetoric indeed from the same demographic that had recently rebranded dictatorship as sovereignty and the relinquishing of our democratic say in the running of Europe as taking back our power. In a strange turn, at their heart, a loose confederacy of conspiracy theorists, many of which seem to be of a New Age persuasion, seem to have gathered under the QAnon banner. A bizarre millennial movement which appears to hold President Trump as some kind of messianic figure. The sinister part of the story is that within their numbers, many of whom would usually gravitate to the egalitarian and democratic left, seem now to be finding common ground with the fascistic right. Fact is stranger than fiction. In many ways, the question as to whether this spectre has spontaneously risen up from the land to haunt us or is a creature of our own conjuration at this point seems to be an irrelevance. Either way, the spectre is a very real presence. Where the shadow of the spectre passed over our landscape changed in a very tangible way. The streets became eerily empty, the lanes began to grow over and close in and the spring vegetation began to creep unchecked through the cracks. In the country, a newfound peace and quiet seemed to be a merciful release from the background static we'd all become accustomed to, whilst in the town it felt haunting and oppressive. My first visit to the town after the lockdown revealed not only a ghost town but also the bay strangely empty of boats. The only people to be seen were the queues outside the banks and the lone teenagers, primarily young men, faces bent with boredom and frustration, drifting from place to place. But above all, the most noticeable change in the human landscape was the appearance of face masks. From my work as a local guide, I was familiar with some of the Oriental and American visitors routinely using medical face masks. But there was always a feeling it was something that other people did. The mask had now somehow become like the mark of the beast in a book of the revelations. We could not buy or sell or even go into a public space without one. Now the mask had become part of our lives. Now pandemics are endemic. Wherever there is community, there is always the shadow of the spectre of contagious disease. Sometimes it just comes and goes, and sometimes, like the Black Death of the 14th century or the Great Plague of the 17th century or the early 20th century Spanish flu epidemic, it has devastating consequences. Our perception of it and our reaction to it 
are always formed of society's beliefs at that particular time. In a medieval world ruled by spiritual agencies, the Black Death was seen as being of spiritual origin, so logically its treatment must have also been religious and magical. In the topsy-turvy world of the 15th century, when the medical orthodoxy was the use of their humoral, the four elements, and astrological medicine, the Swiss alchemist Paracelsus developed the idea of using observation and talking to the traditional healers as his main medical tool. From this he derived the crazy idea that diseases could be caused by contagion and could be cured by cleanliness and the use of chemicals. By the time of the bubonic plague, 200 years on, this theory began to come into play. One great example of this coming into action was the eerie and iconic Plague Doctor's Mask. The Plague Mask consisted of of a face mask with built-in goggles and a great long beak, which one 17th century account says was stuffed with rue and garlic both herbs being associated with the banishing of both worldly and otherworldly nasties. This mask was worn with hat, gloves and boots and a full-length body covering of either leather or waxed material. In addition to this, the plague doctor would carry a stick. The overall effect would indeed inhibit airborne or contact contagion. In wearing this strange mask, one wonders what was in the mind of the plague doctor. We can not now tell if they were aware of it, but this strange attire would also be rather unnervingly evocative of the crow or the raven, the folkloric harbinger of death. It's ironic that the wearing of a mask can be quite different experience to that of actually seeing a mask from the outside. Some months into the pandemic, I went to give blood. In addition to the risk of exposure to COVID, entering a strange public space began to generate a new level of anxiety. Each place had its own set of rules of where and when and how you may pass through that space. This is usually indicated by a series of hastily made signs and tapes on the floor. One has but an instant to navigate them and failure to do this brings a minimum penalty of a stern look. This has led to another new word in our vocabulary, flashpoints. The moment when tempers flare and the red mist descends. Such was the extent of this and the number of police call-outs relating to this. The public was advised not to approach anyone regarding any perceived breaches of the new and ever-changing Covid protocols. On an individual level, we saw it in the aisles of our supermarkets. On a mass scale, we've just seen it in Trafalgar Square protests. There are many hidden levels to the wearing of masks. Back to the story of giving blood. After navigating my way in, I stood before the reception desk. The nurse at reception asked me if I needed a form. I replied yes, to which she gave me a pen and walked off. I was a little puzzled, but I just walked on and sat down. After a short moment, I got up and walked to the desk and asked if I should not have some paperwork to go with my pen. The two nurses rounded on me. Their response was disproportionately defensive and hostile. I meekly took the appropriate form and sat down. 
In retrospect, it was a curious incident. Why were they so openly and irrationally confrontational? And why was I so submissive? The social psychological experiments of Stanley Milgram at Yale University in the 1960s on the nature of compliance to authority came to mind. Milgram set up a bogus experiment in which the participants, who were unaware that it was a setup, were asked to administer potentially lethal doses of electricity to a subject. There was, of course, no electricity, and the subject, of course, was an actor. An alarmingly high percentage of the participants complied and gave what they thought to be a lethal dose of electricity to the subject. Why did they do this? Simply because a perceived authority figure asked them to do so. One of the key factors in a person being perceived as an authority figure seems to be the use of a uniform. A uniform, as its name suggests, depersonalises an individual. It makes them a conduit of a perceived impersonal power. There I stood before two anonymous uniformed nurses, all their facial features obscured. Behind my mask, I too was reduced to a body that needed to be shunted around. In that moment, in a very real sense, we all became our masks and acted accordingly. I felt an ominous sense that there was more of this to come. It's not surprising that the far right seem to be reacting so strongly against the mask. It's something we have previously associated with foreign countries. The implementation of their use could be seen as an intrusion of the government into our personal sphere. The reasons for its use is altruistic and its accidental byproduct is that they inadvertently obscure our individuality. All of these being an anathema to the right. In addition to this, if it is thought that COVID-19 is a fake, then the wearing of the mask could be seen as buying into an oppressive and sinister plot. But if it's real, then to the far right, the fact that it's killing the weak and vulnerable is considered a good thing. For those with any sense of collectivity, not wearing a mask spells out disaster. But to the far right mentality, the rejection of a mask to them ironically makes absolute sense. Maybe it's not so much of a case of who is right and who is wrong. Maybe it's a case of choosing what kind of world you want to buy into. 
the use of masks seems to be becoming more and more symbolic and more and more a badge of one's partisan stance. We have seen the antagonism to the mask, not only in the radical grassroots alt-right, but also on a governmental level, in the antics of President Trump. In another surreal turn of events, in spite of Trump's very public cynicism towards the wearing of face masks and the importance of the Covid virus, Trump and his good lady wife had just been tested positive. But as his QAnon supporters would be pleased to know, he does seem to have risen again on the third day, proudly declaring his infection to be a blessing from God. We must be aware. Paradoxically, not wearing a mask can equally become another kind of mask in itself. Famously told the voter, I want you to look in my eyes when he's not wearing the mask, because I've never seen a man that liked the mask. Look, look I'm, I'm all for masks. I just ask you, I would wear, if I were in a group of people and I was close, you would wear one. Oh, I would wear one. I have a If I were in a tough situation with people, I would have a public I mean, I'd have no problem. I had a mask on. And I thought it was okay. I thought it was the long range. And I think it would be the coronavirus. I think that at some point that's going to sort of just disappear. It has long been held that the words we utter are but a small portion of the sum total of our communication. In addition to what we say, there is a vast bulk of non-verbal communication. This can include facial and body movements, sub-vocalisations, smells such as pheromones, the use of proximity and space. Much of this is given and received on a subconscious level. And it is this that gives our words context, nuance and meaning. Behind the mask, much of this is obscured both for the speaker and the listener. If this is the case, then it begs the question, what replaces the elements of communication that are lost? On the part of the listener and the speaker, perhaps it is stirring up a cauldron of our inner worlds. On the surface, the mask seems to be a simple functional object, and so it is, but its function could be said to be manifest on many different levels. The wearing of a mask is double-edged, like a secret. There is the one who holds the secret, and there is the one from whom the secret is withheld. And so with the mask, there are two very distinct sides to it that which is perceived by the wearer and that which is perceived by the onlooker. Both have their own distinct meanings and nuances. The onlooker responds to the mask and this is fed back to the wearer of the mask. In the ensuing feedback loop, both parties are symbiotically transformed. Alkistis Dancer, author, publisher and occultist. Mask and Persona In the mask, we have a powerful ritual tool to cast off the social self. 
Along with the specific physiological changes that different types of mask effect, the act of masking brings about a state of consciousness which disinhibits movement. The differences between moving in a masked and an unmasked state are immediately felt. When masked, one is susceptible to non-ordinary influences. The mask bridges the gulf between the personal realm and the divine. It is an instrument of transformation and transition. The mundane personality is eclipsed, and at the same time one is given another face. The Greek prosopon means face and mask. It is also appearance and persona. The mask is between, or as the etymology of prosopon implies, before. In this way it reconciles antitheses, seen, unseen, mundane, sacred, human, divine, man, woman, and so on. In Masks, Transformation and Paradox, David Napier observes, the face, the mask, becomes the intermediary, the arbiter between these two inner and outer oppositions. Being betwixt and between, the mask also signifies liminality. Thus, the mask manifests and makes known the mystery, the unspeakable. I enter trance with the placing of the mask over my face. It is subtle at first. The capacity to deepen this state increases with repetition and in developing a ritual and devotional relationship with the mask. The work will become more revelatory and liberating after an extended period exploring the terrain. There is no substitute for mental and physical exhaustion when one goes beyond preconceived limitations. Exhaustion releases the body-mind, effectively silencing the social voices and allowing a state of pure possibility. Failing in the ritual application of makeup are also forms of masking that are sympathetic with Babylon. Maquillage is a subtle way to extend devotional practice into secular space and daily life, just as a mirrored compact can serve as a discreet altar and be kept with one at all times. Thus the person, the body, may also function as a mask, a projection of the inner reality. Self-consciousness is surrendered and the body is given as a vehicle for the divine. The enlightenment has obscured the dark wisdom of the body. Yet the mythic transcends reason. It transcends the dichotomy of finite and infinite, of mortal and immortal. Form and force cannot be separated. Where there is form, force will come, as force inexorably takes forms. To know cannot be grasped by the mind alone. Knowledge is embodied. In possession, we incarnate the paradox of a finite being experiencing infinite being the mystery in flesh. The conscious knowledge of the transformative qualities of the mask is as old as the hills. Prehistoric cave paintings throughout the world, most notably the Sorcier of the Le Trois Frères caves in France, bear witness to the antiquity of this practice. Throughout Asia, Africa, Oceania and the Americas, the shamanic use of masks is widespread. Dr Margaret Murray even argued that the apparent use of masks in the witchcraft, as recorded in the witchcraft trials, 
and the folk traditions such as the mumming plays and the green man and the padstow and the minehead obbiosis and the dulcet oozer are also a continuity of this ancient belief and practice. In spite of the mask's apparent ubiquity in myth and folklore, there seems remarkably little mention of the masks themselves in songs and stories. It's almost like the masks become invisible. It's almost as if, like the storyteller or the singer, they occupy a position of a metafolkloric construct. The folkloric practice and the mythical experience are not born of the mask, but it passes through it as a kind of conduit. One could almost say that the mask is a physical crystallisation of the story, which we may quite literally step into. In the shaman's mask, the physical depiction of the spirit it wishes to evoke is always linked to a body of myth and a system of praxis. The mask draws both the wearer and the observer into a mythical other world, and in turn, this mythical resonance gives the mask its life and power. Carl Jung described the outward and most evident part of the self as, as the persona, which quite literally in Latin means mask. Like the shaman's mask, this serves a dual function, first to hide and obscure the inner self from both itself and others, and in the case of the shaman, the external spirit world as well. Secondly is the matrix of the constructed self we choose to present to the world. In both the case of the persona and the shaman's mask, the self behind it recedes and the mask becomes an entity in its own right. We become our personality and the shaman becomes the animal god or spirit whose masks they bear. In the shadow of the spectre of COVID-19, it's hard to know what the actual situation is when faced with an unknown where the stakes are high, such as the one we face now. It's best to apply Pascal's wager. That's to say, by wearing a mask, I have little to lose and potentially much to gain. Whereas by not wearing a mask, I have little to gain, but potentially I could stand to lose the health and life of myself and others. One must, however, take great care in the mythical resonances with which we adorn our masks, for they represent that which we may become. If we choose to hide behind a mask of fear, paranoia and intolerance, then we run the risk of evoking a far greater and far more terrible spectre than anything a mere virus could throw at us. In primitive tribes, they wear these huge ceremonial masks. Oh, big wooden head and crown skirt, you mean? They completely cover them Total disguise. A trap gets inside one of those, leads away. The tribe thinks it's alive. <laughs> I must hurry. No, oh, it's not like that at all. It's not a disguise. They know the man's inside, but it doesn't matter. They believe the mask itself is alive. Always, all the time. The man is just helping. It's very deep stuff. Yes. So, so, so I thought if, if by any chance you meant something like that, then...
This was a Quarry Studio production, made in a secret location in a quarry somewhere in West Cornwall. Words, music, sounds and production, Steve Patterson. Patterson. Engineering, editing, production and additional voice, Dave Wisdom. Additional voice, website design and brainwaves, Lisa Wisdom. If you want to support us, you can do so on patreon.com slash antiquarian adventures in meta reality. For further information, look us up on stevepattersonantiquarian.com. We look forward to joining you for further antiquarian, antiquarian adventures in meta reality.